Let's pray for the preaching of the Word of God. All right? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for my brother Jed. I thank you for him. I thank you for his faithfulness to your Word, his faithfulness to his children, and the faithfulness to the children. I thank you, Lord, that you have broken his heart over uh, the injustice and that you've given him something to say. I pray that you'd open up our hearts to hear what your spirit has to say to the church. And pray that uh, he would give us a gospel-driven, Bible-based message that would turn our eyes toward Jesus and receive from Jesus what we need to do about it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Bob. I went uh, skiing with my daughter uh, yesterday, which is something I've done twice and once a year. So hopefully uh, this thing, which I do once a year, goes better than that thing. Um, um, I have nine children uh, from the ages of um, 16 down to six months. Uh, so this story is not going to be surprising to you. I heard a yell um, from another room. Uh, I think I was in the kitchen. From I heard something from the living room. And uh, a small person's feet running towards me and saying that a sibling had hit another sibling. Um, and so I was, you know, talking with the sibling who was the accused. And they were saying that they didn't do anything, but it was pretty clear that they'd hit their young, younger sibling. Um, and I was trying to explain to them the importance of telling the truth and of trust, and of confronting your sin. Um, and they said to me, but if I tell the truth, I'll be in trouble. We are all familiar with this dilemma. As adults, if anything, it gets worse. Not only do we have to deal with whatever consequences may come, we have to deal with people's contempt, people's judgment, and looking ourselves in the mirror. Worst of all, we have to live with the knowledge that we've sinned against a holy and just God. Even people who don't know that, or who would argue with you about it all day long, they know it. In our hearts, we all know it. You don't have to look farther in the Bible than the story of Adam and Eve for an illustration of this. Immediately after Adam and Eve um, sin, they disobey God, they eat the fruit that he told them not to, they hide themselves under clothes that they fashion and they run away and hide. They know that they have shame. They know that they have done wrong, even though they don't understand. We live in a country where there have been about 60 million babies aborted since 1973. The mothers of these babies had friends, parents, boyfriends, teachers, and others who were involved in that decision either supporting, encouraging, or coercing. There were also doctors, nurses, receptionists, cleaning staff, and finally trash men involved. Then there were neighbors, pastors, family, friends, church members, who knew about the unplanned pregnancy, but offered no encouragement or help, who instead chose to sit in silent judgment or fearful apathy. 
as Dave Miller pointed out to me in the break between Sunday school and now, um, every one of those uh, had a father who didn't take responsibility. Maybe not everyone, but most of them. So we have 60 million reasons to not talk about abortion. The reality of it implicates us all to some degree or another. And I know this because we don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it right now. I'm uncomfortable every time this Sunday rolls around. And I know a lot of you are too. I don't want to face the reality of what we do as a culture, a culture that set its face against God. I don't want to talk about how we dispose of and toss out the image of God made manifest in unborn children, like yesterday's garbage. And this is how I know we need to talk about it. Because this is the weight of sin crushing us. Satan wants to see every one of God's children crushed under the rubble of their sin. The most effective way for that to happen is for people to be left gasping out, What sin? as they are crushed underneath it. And this is the natural response of people without hope. There, where there is no freedom from, from sin, who can look at it? It's better to try and pretend it doesn't exist, to try and distract yourself with fun or anger or striving, anything to avoid the painful, devastating, soul-shattering truth. And abortion is one of the hardest things for us to look at terrible, the taking of an innocent, defenseless life. It's going to require a miracle for us to face up to what we've done as a culture, as a nation. What we have been part of and what we have silently watched. And finally, after facing up to it, to end it. What I'm talking about is a concrete goal which requires a spiritual change. I say this because we do have hope for this change because we do serve a God who does miracles. The miracle of his incarnation and sacrifice for sin allows people to face what they have done. It allows me to face what I have done, and hopefully it allows you to face what you have done. And acknowledge those things that we've done to repent, be forgiven, and be redeemed. And that's how change happens. And this is what we need to preach and pursue if we want to see change. Thankfully, God is, Jesus gave us an example of how to perform this type of ministry and how to gently lead sinners to repentance and freedom from shame in the story of the woman at the well. This is in John 4. I'm going to start out reading John 4, 1 to 10 if you want to follow along. I didn't do any slides, sorry. I was thinking about just doing a bunch of memes to accompany every part of it and embarrass my children. But I didn't have time. So maybe they were praying against me. I don't know. Uh, now, when Jesus le learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, 
Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So this story opens up with Jesus uh, needing to leave Jerusalem because things were getting hot. His disciples were baptizing many, and the Pharisees were getting mad. Um, So it is at least interesting to note that this story starts off with uh, people fencing the kingdom against Jesus. So these are the Pharisees who believe that the kingdom of God belongs to them, and that Jesus is usurping their authority. We know that in in the final story, Jesus is going to usurp all their authority. Um, But at this time, in the wisdom of his ministry, he leaves Judea and goes to Galilee. So, the story opens up with Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus is sitting beside a well, walking. He's walked all day. He and his disciples are are poor. They can't afford... um, you know, donkeys or horses or Ferraris to ride in. Um, so they've been walking from Judea to Samaria, which is about a three-day journey. And Jesus is, is tired, and he's sitting by the well. He sent uh, his disciples off to get food at a nearby town. So, you know, perhaps he was so tired and, and parched that he couldn't even go with them into town. And he was just, you know, um, sitting by the well, resting against the well. And along comes a Samaritan woman. So now we need to talk about, okay, he's in Samaria. Samaria is between Judea and Galilee, but it's not really part of Israel. Who are the Samaritans? What is Samaria? So they would have told you that they were the descendants of Jacob through Joseph and real heirs in the kingdom. Um, But they were probably kind of defensive about that. Uh, I was thinking about this, an analogy about this is like, so I, I grew up in Philadelphia, um, and we like to think of ourselves as a real, you know, big city. This is, you know, a legit city, right? But we're kind of defensive about New York. Um, so that's, you know, that's maybe some of the flavor of what the Samaritans felt, but a little more than that. Um, in reality, the historical reality of it, of it is that the, mix, the Samaritans were a mixture of people that the king of Assyria did not want to bring to Assyria, so Jews that had stayed behind uh, during the um, diaspora, and Assyrians um, who the Assyrian king had sent back to live in Samaria. And their religion was kind of like a bootleg Judaism. They only had the first, uh, yeah, only had the first five books of the Bible, um, and they, they then they went ahead and built a competing fake temple to God on Mount Gerizim, um, in, in competition to the uh, temple that was in Jerusalem. Um, Larry, can you hold up your shoe that you took off? I'm thankful that Larry wore his J's today. So that is what a legit pair of Jordans looks like right there. Um, yeah, Ben, you can put, put your foot up too there. Now, if, you, if you'll notice, there's two legs and two arms on that guy. Um, Mount Gerizim was kind of like a bobo pair of Jordans, where Jordan only has one leg. Um, And furthermore, um, and so 
you know, you can see how the Jews would have felt towards these guys. Uh, and, but even worse than that, um, when God had instructed the Israelites to rebuild the temple, um, the Samaritans had opposed the rebuilding of the temple because, you know, they didn't want a new power structure arising in Israel where they lived. Um, and so they had uh, really betrayed the people of God who were, you know, in great difficulty working to do God's will and working in faith to follow God. Um, now, one more thing strike against the Samaritans is that uh, they had cities of refuge in Samarian territory. Um, cities of refuge were cities that actually God had established where people who had done certain things like killed somebody accidentally and who may be subject to blood guilt, um, but who hadn't killed someone intentionally, so they weren't to receive the death penalty, they could run away to these cities of refuge and there escape the vengeance that might come from the relatives of the person who had been killed. And so that's just to say there was a criminal sort of flavor to some of these cities in Samaria. So if you're a Jew and your perspective towards Samaria is these are people who are faking that they're God's people, they are blaspheming against God by setting up a competing temple against him, uh, they're a bunch of criminals, um, and, so, and they've betrayed God and his work when we were trying to rebuild the temple. So just to tell you a little bit about what that means is so Jesus is taking this journey between uh, Judea and Galilee, which is a three-day journey by foot. Some Jews would go the long way around, a seven-day journey from Judea to Galilee, just to avoid going through Samaria. This is maybe like some people in this room I know have relatives that won't visit them in Philadelphia. It's true. So, the second part of setting this scene is we are set up by a well. So this is a, you know, we don't really have a lot of wells that we go to nowadays. Um, and even if we did have wells, like this is, there's a lot of water here in Pennsylvania. We're very blessed. We don't have to worry about fresh water. But this scene takes place in, in basically a desert. So if you're next to, you know, Wells are very important because you're walking through a desert all day long. If you don't find somewhere to drink water, you can die. So a well is a place where thirst is satisfied. And uh, most of the time, travelers would take a little leather bucket with them so they could get water when they did come to a well because you never knew when you would need some water. Um, secondly, and this is, is perhaps more important for this story, or at least equally important, the well was a place where women would come to get water and men would come to find women. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, Match.com of uh, 1 AD. Um, and you can look even back further. You look at the stories of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah. All of these stories are stories about people either meeting their wives at wells or having, you know, a servant sent to meet, you know, their wife at a well. Especially if we look at Jesus asking for a drink next to a well, I think there's a lot of parallels up to the story of Abraham's servant finding Rebekah for Isaac at a well. So Abraham needs to find a wife 
uh, for his son, but he doesn't want to, you know, find one from among the people that he's living. He wants to find somebody who's, you know, legit back from the old country. Um, so this is in Genesis 24. This is the servant praying uh, after he goes to the well to look for a wife for Isaac. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show me kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I will water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So immediately we see a sharp contrast between the story of the woman at the well and the story of Isaac and Rebekah. If you remember the response of the woman uh, at the well, she says, why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. You know, like we shouldn't, You shouldn't be talking to me. Um, And you see in the story of Isaac and Rebekah, what the servant is looking for is a woman who has a generous, open heart. Not only does she give him a drink, she offers to give a drink to his camels too. So there's a conflict that's arising here that's going to need to be resolved in this story. Mr. Fancy Jew wants some water from the dirty Samaritan. And we don't know, you know, what this reaction is coming from necessarily. There's not a lot of editorializing in this story. It may be that this woman's genuinely confused. It was weird for a male Jew to be talking to a Samaritan woman. Maybe she's wary. Like maybe she's, we do know from later in the passage that she's had bad, you know, likely had bad experiences with men. Maybe she's concerned that, uh, you know, Jesus is, has bad intentions. Maybe she's just been hurt by, uh, you know, Jews judging her and being unkind to her, and she just doesn't she doesn't want to take it anymore, and she doesn't want to have any of it. We don't know. We don't know exactly what the tone is. But it's probably a mixture of those. Now, this is a great uh, point here, um, because, first of all, Jesus does not engage her on the identity issue. She comes at him, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, you think you're better than me, etc. And he does not address that. Jesus just starts getting weird. So he starts pointing her towards a spiritual reality and says, you know, if you knew who I was and the work of God, you would have asked me for water and I would have given you living water. Which is weird because they're talking about a well that's a hundred feet deep and as we have noted, Jesus does not have a bucket or he would have gotten his own water. So then we come to the second part of this passage in John 4, 11, 26. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying this, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So let's start off with the woman's response to Jesus offering her living water. She brings up a practical reality, which he doesn't have, is that he doesn't have a bucket. And she... But immediately after that, she continues on the defensive point about her identity. So that's why she's bringing up my father, our father Jacob gave us this well. Because this is, uh, and this well actually is still in Israel. You can go visit it. Although people have been chucking rocks in it to see how deep it is, so you can't get water out of it anymore because it's it's not deep enough. Um, This is a well that Jacob had set up on land that he had bought in Samaria. Um, and so this was part of the uh, defense, the apologetic that the Sumerians had for why they were the real Jews. So that's why she's bringing up, are you better than our father Jacob? Again, Jesus doesn't engage. He just takes things to a weirder level. So he ex- ignores the identity issue that she wants to make a barrier, and he starts to reveal to her what he has for her which is a spiritual reality that's much better than the physical reality that she's thinking about. So, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And then he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, her response to that is, is not a direct response because uh, he says that the spring will become water welling up to eternal life, which points at a spiritual reality, which if you were taking someone seriously, you would want to address. So I'm not sure if her response here is a sincere response or how much of it's a sincere response. Or if she's just tired of this guy talking to her in this strange way, so she's going to put him on the spot, see if he gets some water, and if not, at least he'll have to shut up. 
Um, but she says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. Or, and this is how I know, there's, she's not quite getting it. Or have to come here to draw water. Because it's a chore. She doesn't want to have to come. You know, if he did give her water that was everlasting, she wouldn't have to come down to the spring anymore. So, Jesus continues to call her into faith. He starts to... So there is something separating Jesus and this woman. She keeps trying to make it about Samaritan versus Jew, but Jesus is going to unveil what what it is that really separates them. So Jesus asks her to go get her husband. He offers her the living water, and he tells her, she says, okay, you've got living water, give me the living water. That sounds fantastic. Um, He tells her to go get her husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus' response is, you know, that's true, because you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, we don't know the details of this story. And knowing the culture of the time, um, and there's a famous rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who said, you know, you could basically divorce your wife for burning toast, you know? So it is extremely likely that there has been sin against this woman in her life, that she's been ill-treated by the men that are in her life. But the other side of that is, I mean, anybody who's been alive for any, any period of time knows that, you know, whenever there's a mess, there's almost always two sides to the mess. So she's probably um, in some way been implicated in sin in that uh, as well. We do know that she's living with someone who's not her husband, So all of those things, you know, point to us for a need for redemption. And this is a shame-based culture that we're talking about here. So whether, you know, knowing that this woman has likely um, committed sin in her life, or we know she's committed sin in her life, um, and is living in sin now, what's most important is that she is living in shame. So she's alienated from the culture around her. And her position is a shameful one. All of us, in some way or the other, are in that position. We all have suffering and sin, and a lot of that sin, we can point to other people that have been involved in that and say, well, this is this person's fault, or this wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have done that, or if he, he had done that. But ultimately, we have a burden that we have to carry to God and that only Jesus can take off our shoulders. So, she admits the truth of what Jesus says in the next portion. She says, but she does it indirectly, so she's not going to talk about what he said. She's going to turn it back around. She says, I, I see that you're a prophet, but our people... So if you're a prophet, tell me this, this answer to my, my story. I have, a, um, I have a question. The Samaritans say that we should worship on Merit Gerizim, and you Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem. You know, if you're a prophet, tell me which one of these is true. I think there's two different ways uh, to read this, and I think both of them are probably correct. Um, one of them is that she doesn't want to talk about what Jesus said to her. It's a source of shame to her in her life. It's maybe one of the most painful things that he could have brought up to her. Um, 
And the other is that Jesus is talking to her about spiritual things, and she has a thirst for God. But as a Samaritan, she feels that maybe there's a separation between her and God that she can't get over. And she brings this up by talking about Mount Gerizim and the Bobo Temple there, and the real temple at Jerusalem that she's not allowed to go into. The other thing that's important about this is Jesus tells her the truth about her life, but the truth doesn't set her free by itself. She's not able to rejoice at this point. She's still questioning Jesus because truth without the retemptive power of Jesus' sacrifice for us and his salvation is just more condemnation. So this is when Jesus is, is really the hinge of the story. Jesus comes back on this mountain's point that she's bringing up, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, which mountain should we go on? And he says, you know what? Forget all that. We're not talking about that anymore. The time is coming and has now come. The time is now when you will worship, in, when the followers of God will worship in spirit and truth. Everywhere, anywhere. And it's for you. But she's still not sure because she's, you know, she knows, she says, okay, fine, these are nice words. Anybody could say that, right? Anybody could come say, everything's great now, you're redeemed. But what does it mean I don't feel redeemed? So she says, and I think this is a wistful, I read this wistfully. I know that when the Messiah comes, he will reveal all things. You know, like maybe you're right. Hopefully the Messiah will tell us when he comes. She needs an incarnate solution to her problem. And that's when Jesus makes the big reveal. He says, I who speak am he. He turns around the story of Isaac and Rebekah. He offers her the drink. And the drink he offers her is the ultimate kindness. He invites invites her to be a member of the bride of Christ. So then she's free. Freedom from needing to find the next man who will take care of her. Freedom from hoping for salvation in a relationship. Freedom from shame. So the next part part of this passage is John 4, 27 to 30. And 39 to 43. I want to skip the middle part. It's, it's, it's a good part. It's an important part, but it's not part of the sermon. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believed, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And after two days, he departed for Galilee. He told me all that I ever did. 
This is repeated twice in this passage. Some commentators say that the conversation must have been longer because Jesus says to her, like, one sentence, and then she goes back and says, he told me all that I ever did. I don't agree with that. Or at least I don't think that's the point. Have you ever been at a place in your life where a couple of sentences about your sins and failures could feel like all that you ever did? That you were defined by things you were ashamed of and that blocked out everything else? This is where the Samaritan woman was. And Jesus miraculously turned that into good news. You know, we talk about Jesus turning the water into wine. That's small-time miracles. When you talk about this woman's shame that she described as all that she ever did, and she's running around yelling to everybody in the town about it. Now, this is likely a woman that everybody in the town was like, eh, you know that woman. And she's saying, hey, this guy knows everything about me. Come see him. He's... The Messiah. So many are saved. Many are saved through her testimony. And Jesus stays a few more days among the Samaritans, ministering to people who he identified as his passages, as people who the truth didn't come to initially, but his heart is open to them. We live in a world where people have many reasons that they are separated from God. Shame separates them from the Savior who loves them. And they don't have hope in their heart that they can be acceptable to God. And they have they hold on to identities, like the Samaritan woman, that keep them feeling safe and secure, but out of the kingdom. So we need to ask ourselves, what makes us feel separated from God? What are the things that we have set apart and not subject to God's kingdom? More importantly, I think we need to ask, what makes people that we know feel like they could never be part of God's family? What makes people feel like they could never show up to church on Sunday morning? What are the areas that people don't think God's grace applies to. I know there's going to be people who are hard of heart, you know, and they're not, you know, they don't want to listen. But there's a lot of people, like this woman, who can hear the gospel and whose hearts can be softened if it's brought to them gently and with the Spirit. And you might never want to talk to that person because you look at them and and they seem spiky and they're a dirty Samaritan. It's our job as the bride of Christ, his church, his brothers and sisters, and God's family to carry the message that Christ came to free us from shame. To redefine our lives and replace all that we have ever done with all that he did and to replace our broken identities with his perfect holy identity. It is not our job to shame those who are already weighed down with sin. 
It is our job to gently engage with them, to tell them the truth about their lives and their sin, and that Christ came to redeem it. I know of stories, I'm not going to name names, but of Christian high schools in our community where girls have been expelled from school for uh, getting pregnant. Getting pregnant involves sin, but is not in itself a sin. And it does not, I'll just put it this way, it would be better that we have no Christian schools at all than that our Christian schools act in this way. I know Satan would love to use abortion to not only end the lives of innocent babies, but also to be a thick stone wall of shame and guilt separating those involved from God and therefore doom them to eternal death. It is a strong source of shame for many. We must woo those who have sinned and have been injured by it. They must know, however they were involved, that there is a place for them in the church, that God wants to embrace them. And we don't need to worry about the unrepentant, hard-hearted sinner, because they are in God's hands. We have to remember that it is the name of Jesus that frees us from that shame. We can't forgive people for what they've done. And it doesn't do them any good for us to tell them that we can. They need God's forgiveness that they can achieve through the sacrifice that Jesus made by coming down to this earth incarnate and dying for them. It is his blood on the cross that removes our blood guilt. Nothing else. And that's my hope here today. In the Old Testament, blood guilt accrues to anybody in a community where there is a murder that goes unpunished. It is only Christ's sacrifice that can cover that. So I just want to leave you with this. Christ came to free us to face all that we ever did and to see his redemptive work in that. Now we need to share that gift with the world.